The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. First Peter uh, chapter 1 is where we'll begin this morning. We're going to do our best to work through the first two verses. Uh, we may not get through the all of them, but uh, we're going to do our best to, to get through them. As I looked over First Peter, there are a few themes that continue to uh, show up throughout the letter. And so if, if I was going to say these are, this is sort of the, the themes that we will be, be following as we move through this letter, the things that I believe Peter is, is driving home for us, they, they revolve around these three words, that we are sojourners, that we are sufferers, and that we are saints. And these are, this is the theme that you see sort of woven throughout um, this entire letter. It shows up over and over and over again. This idea that we are sojourners. Now that's, that's not a word that we use very much in today's language. That may not be a word that, that you're familiar with. Um, what a sojourner is, someone who is sojourning, is someone who is traveling, someone who is um, on their way home and they're not there yet, someone who's, who's passing through. That's, that's the idea of being a, a sojourner. And it is true that we are traveling. We are passing through. That this world is not our home. Um, it's funny in church how... Uh, catchphrases start and, and churches start using, you know, everybody starts using the same um, catchphrases. And so lately I, I've seen this over and over again with these churches and their, their marketing push is welcome home. And I understand the, the sentiment where if you come through our doors or visit our gatherings, we want you to feel welcome and we want you to feel at home. But the reality is, as good as this may feel, this is not our home. And we, we can never let ourselves begin to live like this world is our home. We are not home. We are exiles here. We're exiles. This is the, the language that Peter uses in um, the first verse to identify who he is writing to. To the exec, uh, elect exiles. Lord willing, we're going to get past those two words today, but we may not. He's writing to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. As we get into the text this morning, we're not going to spend much time on those um, locations. But um, Peter identifies his letter at, written as to these believers in these areas. It's, it is almost as if this is a postal route. That this is the way this letter is traveling from this city to this city to this city to this city to this city to, this city to encourage and instruct the believers there. 
Throughout the letter, Peter speaks often of the world that is to come. He speaks often of our inheritance, driving home the truth that we are to live as if this world is not our home. We will see this over and over and over again as we study um, this letter together. The second theme is that of sufferers. Sufferers. This letter was written in a, the mid-60s A.D. 64, 65 A.D. is when we, we date this, this letter. That is significant because it is right at the beginning of what will be one of history's greatest times of the persecution of Christians. It started in A.D. 65 when there was a a fire in Rome. And the emperor Nero, who already despised Christians, he did not like Christians because they refused to worship anyone other than God. And Nero, as the emperor of Rome, fancied himself as God and therefore desired the worship of his subjects. Yet Christians rightly refuse to worship anyone or anything other than God alone. So Nero, already uh, despising Christians, works up a plan to blame this fire in Rome on Christians. And it ushered in one of the greatest periods of persecution of Christians that the world has ever seen. Atrocities beyond comprehension. Uh, Entertainment in the death of Christians. Believers dipped in pitch and set on fire to light the city. And Peter's writing to a church that is beginning to feel the the waves of this. To show them, to teach them that suffering should not surprise us and suffering should not surprise them centuries before his birth Isaiah predicted that Jesus Christ would be in Isaiah 53 despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not. The Apostle John noted the rejection of Jesus in John 1 in verse 10. says that he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was despised. Jesus was rejected. Jesus' life was marked by suffering. And so it is with his disciples. If we love him and the world is not his own, the world is not our own, and the world despised and rejected and persecuted and killed Jesus Christ. We as his believers should not be surprised when suffering comes to us. Suffering is an expected part of the Christian life. We cannot let anyone tell us anything differently. 
Suffering was experienced by the Old Testament saints. It was experienced by Jesus himself. It was experienced by his disciples, by his apostles. It has been experienced through the whole history of the church. And we need to expect it to come. And we need to understand how to stand firm in it. Suffering will come. There are some who will say that it is not God's will that you ever suffer. And that if you do suffer, it's because of some sin in your life that you haven't repented of. Um, But the reality is, is that suffering is a part of the Christian experience. And Peter identifies his purpose of this letter in chapter 5, verse, verse 12. He says, by Silvanus, the, the brother who is taking this letter throughout these cities, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So if Peter was to boil down the purpose of his letter, this is it. To stand firm in the true grace of God. In the face of suffering, in the face of persecution, in the reality that this is not our home, we are exiles here. As this pressing of suffering and persecution comes, understand the true grace of God and stand firm in it. You see this weaved throughout this letter. We are sojourners, we are sufferers, and we are saints. To understand our identity as being made a saint, as being sanctified, and living that way. To understand that we are the people of God. Peter says it this way in chapter 2, starting in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see Peter saying, this is your identity. Although you're sojourners and although you're suffering, in the midst of that, you are saints. You've been made the people of God. We see these themes in the first two verses that we'll look at this morning. Look with me, starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter begins his letter in of all places with the theological truth of God's sovereign choice. This is the doctrine of election. Peter says it this way. To those who are elect. 
Now, it may seem like a strange place to start a letter. But it really isn't. Because this is where redemptive history began. This isn't just where Paul has begun his letter with the sovereign choice of God. But this is where all of redemptive history began. It began with the sovereign choice of God. How do we know that? Paul tells us, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Paul shows us that in Eternity passed before the foundations of the world were laid. God in His sovereignty made a, a choice for who would be His people. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Paul begins this letter saying, I'm writing this specifically to the elect exiles. Which seems strange. Unless you understand, this is where all of redemptive history began. It's the perfect place to begin a letter. And Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That we have been given an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance. That word obtained there is not a, a word that means earned. It's a word that means given. We have been given an inheritance. And Peter's going to talk at great lengths about this inheritance. We've been given an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. This is a clear statement on the sovereignty of God that He is working all things in accordance to His will, in accordance to His purposes. We ask, what, are, what, are, what is all things? This is good. Write this down. It's all things. That God is working all things according to the counsel of His will. He's not in heaven saying, well, I'm not sure what to do. Let me consult somebody. Let me see how this works out. I'm not too sure. No, God is, as the sovereign creator of the universe, working all things out in accordance to His sovereign will. Paul told the church at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, but we ought to always give thanks to God for you. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, starting in verse 37, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And this is so the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. I love that verse because it's, I'm thinking of all the things Jesus Christ just said, that's the one you got a problem with? Talk about clueless. And they said, is is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered him and said, Do not grumble among yourself. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The scriptures are clear. The scriptures consistently proclaim that God before the foundation of the world made a sovereign choice for who would be his people. And this sovereign choice comes from God's foreknowledge. This is what Peter says. To those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So you you put these things together. To those who are elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, who are now exiles in these areas. That it was the foreknowledge of God that informed this sovereign choice. This is echoed in... Romans 8 by the Apostle Paul. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So now we have the order of salvation. It begins with the foreknowledge of God. Those whom he foreknew. The next step was predestination. He also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the order of salvation. In eternity past, God in his foreknowledge predestined those 
to whom he would call, and everyone that he calls, he justifies, and everyone that he justifies, he glorifies. Now, some will say that this word foreknowledge means that God in eternity past, being omniscient, being all-knowing, is able to look through the, the, the corridor of time and to see us, and he is able to know if we will choose him or not. And that's what it means in God's foreknowledge, that he knew before it would happen whether or not we would choose him. And so that knowledge was informed by our choice. I will give you three reasons why that is not a right understanding of foreknowledge. I could give you more, but I'm just going to give you three. Here's the first. It puts man as the sovereign in salvation instead of God. Jesus said in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father's, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. If foreknowledge means simply that God was able to look through time and see what we would choose, then that puts us as the sovereign in salvation. When Jesus said, You didn't choose me, I chose you. The second reason is, is that it gives man credit for his salvation that he doesn't deserve. We don't deserve credit for our salvation. We did nothing for our salvation. The only thing we brought to our salvation was the sin that we needed to be forgiven of. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. And then thirdly, it assumes that fallen man can seek after God. Romans 3 says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. The scriptures say we are dead in our trespasses and sins. A dead man can do nothing. A dead man is dependent on an outside source acting upon him to bring life into him. This is salvation. We are dead in our sin, dependent on a holy God to act on us to produce a new life. God gets the credit and the glory for our salvation. It is a free gift of grace from him. Nothing we have done to deserve it. Nothing we have done to earn it. It comes from him. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent us his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We did not love God. You did not love God. I did not love God. I had no capacity to love God in my sinful state. Love is God loved me anyway. And God gave me the ability to love him. The ability to respond in faith towards him. This, this word foreknowledge comes from a Greek word, uh, prognosis. 
It's the same word that is used in verse 20 of Jesus, except there it's used in, in verb form. And Peter says that he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So let's... let's Assume that foreknowledge means that God is able to see through the corridor of time and, and see what choice we're going to make in the matter and then that inform his, his sovereign will. Well, Peter says Jesus Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But he was made known in the last days. And that he is now the conduit through which we are believers in God. So if this foreknowledge means that God saw the choice we would make, then this would mean of Jesus, that God saw through the corridors of time to Jesus, who, and He saw that Jesus decided, yes, I will go to the cross. And so God said, okay, then that's my plan. But we know that's not the case. That the cross was God's plan from the beginning. That the cross and the crucifixion was God's will, not Jesus' will. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? God, if it is at all possible, would you let this cup pass from me? And then what does Jesus say? But not my will, God, your will. Because it was God's sovereign will that Jesus Christ come in the form of man, clothed in flesh, living a perfect, holy, sinless life, despised and rejected by men crucified, buried, and risen on the third day. This was God's plan according to His sovereign choice, His foreknowledge. Foreknowledge, rightly understood, is God's eternal, predetermined, loving, and saving intention. That God in His sovereignty and His goodness made the choice for who would be his people. Now, that was like, I realize, that was like opening a, a fire hydrant. And you might hear that and you might say, like I wasn't expecting that. And you might hear that and you might say, man, I got a million questions. And you might hear that and say, that's really hard to take. And you might hear that and say, that's really hard to, to understand. And I would say, you are exactly right. Amen. That is hard to take. That it, it is difficult to understand. But that doesn't make it not true. How we can reconcile... That God in his sovereignty, in his foreknowledge, predestined those to whom he would call. Who, those whom he would justify and those whom he would glorify. How that truth, which is clear in the scriptures, goes together with 2 Peter chapter 3. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. How those two things go together, I have no idea. And I wish I could stand here and tell you that this is how the doctrine of election, which is true because it's all over the pages of Scripture, and man's responsibility, which is true because it's all over the pages of Scripture. How those two things go together, and we can make them go together in, the, the, just in you know, perfect harmony. I wish I could do that this morning, but I can't do that. But just because we can't understand it or just because it seems difficult, that doesn't mean that it's not true. Like we have to decide and you have to decide. I'm going to believe what the Bible says whether I understand it or not. I don't know how it works together. I don't know how it goes together. But the Bible says it, so I believe it. God in his sovereignty chose. Man is responsible. God desires all to come to salvation and that no one would perish. That's the way it is. Now, you might have some questions about that. If you do, you are welcome to come and see me. You're welcome to come and see Jacob. Anytime. Not anytime, but you know what I mean. This is who Peter's writing to, to those who are elect exiles. So why is this important, this idea, this truth of the doctrine of election, that we were elect, we were chosen, Why is this important and why does Peter start here? Well, he starts here and he identifies these brothers and sisters and us this way. Because we are exiles. You see, these were brothers and sisters who were scattered throughout the world. These are brothers and sisters who are are living in Roman provinces. These are brothers and sisters who feel without a a home. They're exiles. Peter says that they're exiles of the dispersion. There is some debate as to what this means. It could mean two things. One, the word means simply scattered to those who are scattered. So you... This word is used just like that, to those who are scattered. But it also can mean um, a specific event known as the scattering or the diaspora. And there's some debate as to which one of these that it it meant. There was a specific time in history when um, Assyrians, Babylonians, they captured Jerusalem, they sent the Jews out. This is the, the... the dispersion, the diaspora. And from that, Jews were scattered, not just in Jerusalem, but scattered out. Now it seems that there are these believers 
who at some point have heard the gospel and have been saved, and they're, they are from these Jews who have been scattered. And it could be from the, from the specific diaspora when Syrians conquered, or it could just be that you're scattered. Either way, these are exiles. These are people who have been scattered from their people. They've been scattered from their land. They're sojourners. They're travelers. They're not home. And Peter writes to them, and the very first thing he calls them is elect. Elect exiles. To remind them and to remind us that our election comes first. And even if we do not have a home here, even if we are lost here, even if we suffer here, even if we lose everything here, we still have a home with God. Because He chose us. And while we don't have a home here, spiritually speaking, and if we were to lose our home physically speaking, we are still God's chosen people. This is our identity. God's chosen people. And it supersedes any earthly identity. To be one of God's chosen people supersedes whether or not you're a Republican or a Democrat. To be one of God's chosen people supersedes your identity as being an American. Now, I'm, I love my country just as much as the next person. I'm as patriotic just as much as the next person. I am grateful to God to be born and raised in this country. I, I'm thankful for that. But my identity is not summed up in that. I mean, there were people and believers who lost their minds when Barack Obama was elected president. And there were people, there were believers who lost their minds when Donald Trump was elected president. And there are people, there are believers who put everything on a political party. I'm not saying those things aren't important. I'm just saying there's something more important. That we can, we can lose the Oval Office. We can lose Capitol Hill. We can lose the Supreme Court. This world is not our home. Amen. We're elect exiles. We're chosen people of God passing through. Now, we have responsibilities here as believers. We have responsibilities here as citizens, and we should work and desire that our government and our rulers and our politicians govern and, and rule in such a way that is uh, godly and biblical and honoring to the Lord, and we should work to those ends. But when that doesn't happen, our world isn't over. 
This isn't our home. You see, this truth that we are God's chosen people, we are the elect, is both comforting and compelling. It's comforting to know that no matter what happens on this earth, we have a home. That's comforting. Is that comforting to you? It's comforting to me to know that God chose me before the foundation of the world. You know that, why that's comforting to me? Because I would have never chose him. If it would have been up to me, I would have messed it up. Because pretty much everything that's up to me, I mess up. And if my salvation was dependent on me, I'm going to blow it. And if it was up to me to keep it, I'm going to lose it. And so it's comforting to know that God, before the foundations of the world, predestined those whom He would call, and those whom He called He justifies, and those whom He justifies, He will glorify. That's comforting to me. It's comforting to me to know that if I lose all that I have in this earth, I don't want to, but if I do, I still have a home with Him in heaven. That's comforting to me. But that's also compelling. That also compels me. That also pushes me towards some things. And it pushes me to holiness and sanctification. That's where Peter goes. Ooh, I think we can do a little more. (laughs) To those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So we've got all that. In sanctification of the Spirit. To obedience to Jesus Christ. And for sprinkling with His blood. You see, that's what this truth compels us to. That's what this truth pushes us to. It pushes us to sanctification and obedience. Because after all, our election was through sanctification. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father... In the sanctification of the Spirit. That it is the Spirit of God that comes to us and works in us to bring sanctification. To cause us to be saints. Here's what that means. It was God in His sovereignty that chose. And it's the Spirit in His strength that sanctifies. Now there are two kinds of sanctification and if you've been around here long enough you've heard it before. If not, I'll I'll just a really quick understanding. There is um, sort of what we will call immediate sanctification. That when we come to Jesus Christ in faith, by faith, that the Spirit of God enters inside of us and at that very moment every sin is forgiven, every Every stain is wiped clean and we are born again into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. We are immediately, instantaneously made a saint, sanctified. Boom. When God sees me, He doesn't see my sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ given to me as a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ. That's immediate sanctification. There's also progressive sanctification, which means we have been made a saint We have been made holy. Now we must learn to live holy, right? Because being made holy and living holy, those are two separate things. I'm still sinning every day. I'm still working, trying to be more like Jesus Christ. 
spiritually before God in right standing before Him, I am justified, I'm sanctified. Yet on this earth, I'm still working out that salvation in fear and trembling as I am being conformed into the image of His Son. Already made His Son, not quite yet His Son. Make sense? It is the Spirit that causes us to be born again and to be sanctified. And it is the Spirit at work in us that produces progressive sanctification as we are conformed into the image of His Son. See, that's what I mean when I say that our election and the truth of our election is both comforting and compelling because it pushes us towards sanctification. We've been made sanctified through the Spirit. Now we live sanctified through the Spirit. Just as it was God's sovereign choice that chose us, it's the Spirit's power that sanctifies us. We didn't do a thing to earn our salvation, and we haven't done a thing to be made a saint. God made us a saint, a saint through His Spirit's power. That's what it says. What it says in the sanctification of the Spirit, not of you, of the Spirit of the Spirit. For what? For the obedience to Jesus Christ. That God has done all of this. That He has chosen us. He's called us. He's justified us. Sanctified us. He's done all of this for obedience to Jesus Christ. God has done this so he can gather for himself a people for his own pleasure and so that through those people he can make a glorified people live in obedience to him. That's the purpose of our calling. That's the purpose of our sanctification to compel us towards obedience in Jesus Christ. For sprinkling with his blood. We're not going to do this justice, but I don't want to leave you hanging. Here's what this is this is hearkening back to Old Testament, the sprinkling of blood. And it's, 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 it's taking the reader back to this moment in Exodus 24. When Moses comes off of the mountain, he's received the words of God. And it says that Moses came and he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's this, the obedience. What a bunch of liars, by the way. Anyway. <laughs> and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he arose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood of the covenant, half of the book of the covenant. No, I'm sorry. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. At half of the blood, he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This blood was the seal of a covenant made. So this is this Old Testament imagery. When God made a covenant with his people, what happened? They took animals, they cut them in half, they set them on two parts. This is the way a covenant was sealed in their day. If I was to make a covenant with you, cut an animal in half, lay it apart, and then the two parties pass through it. That was the covenant. The only thing we have today close to that is marriage, and I believe we ought to do that in the wedding ceremony. <laughs> Talk about weirding some people out. But both parties would pass through it. And here's what that's saying. That's saying that like we mean this so seriously that if we break this promise, if we break this covenant that we've made with you, may what happened to these animals happen to us, right? So when God made a covenant with his people, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he caused Abraham to go to sleep. And then these, these, these animals were passed, you know, cut apart. But God passed through. Abraham didn't. And see, this was... The, the symbol that it is God who keeps the covenant with his people. That is not dependent on our obedience. It's dependent on his good word. On his faithfulness. And so now here at the bottom of the, of the mountain, you've got the people of God saying, we receive the word and we will be obedient to the word. And Moses takes the blood and he sprinkles them with it and he says, this is the blood of the covenant that you've made. Well, here's the problem. They're not going to keep the covenant. Guess what? Neither are we. But now there's a greater sacrifice. That greater sacrifice is Jesus Christ. Now there's a greater blood. That greater blood is the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of a new covenant. And his blood is eternal. His blood is everlasting. So here's what this means by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It means that God chose us and him before the foundation of the world according to his foreknowledge by the sanctification of the Spirit to obedience to Jesus Christ that is eternally secure based on his blood. That our calling and our election and our sanctification through the Spirit is eternally secure because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Hey, do you exiles who have lost a lot, and these brothers and sisters haven't even begun to see the things that they will lose. But you will never lose Christ because you are eternally secure because of His blood, not because of yours. That's, that's, that's Paul's opening. Peter's opening. I knew I'd say Paul. That's Peter's opening. We're elect exiles. Chosen by God in a world that is not our own. We've been sanctified. By the Spirit's power, sanctified. To live obediently to Jesus Christ. 
knowing we are eternally secure as we've been spiritually sprinkled with his blood. Now, I love this opening because this lays out everything that we're going in 1 Peter. Hey, do you see it? We're sojourns. We're sufferers. We're saints. Because of that, God's called us to live a certain way and to stand firm. To stand firm in the faith, no matter the circumstances. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net. Thank you.